Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. It's our Tuesday episode, our Tuesday book club episode, the once a month we've read a book and now we're gonna talk about it episode. And today what we're going to be talking about is the most bonkers cuckoo nuts book I think I, no, you know what? No, no. <laughs> we've read some pretty out there shit, but this one is pretty far up there. So You're I'm, welcome. So if you didn't read Star Maker and you're just relying on us to summarize this book, good on you. It's perfectly fine. Totally approve of that method because um, this is one where we've taken one for the team, ladies and gentlemen, and however you define yourself, because this isn't for everybody. All right. What I would like you to do to really set the scene for how it feels to read Star Maker all right, everyone, we're going to set a scene in our mind. Are you ready? Okay. Imagine you're in a college classroom. There's rows and rows of seats. It's dark. You can't really see the people around you. You might as well be alone. You're staring forward at a blackboard waiting for the teacher to arrive. The teacher walks in. They pull out a stool. They sit down. And for the next six and a half hours, they just talk. There are no slides, there are no pictures, there are no questions, they take no breaths, they take no breaks, they just talk for six and a half hours. And they don't talk about interesting things, they talk about the universe in an ever-widening perspective until they finally land on having zoomed out so far, they see the being that formed the universe itself. And then you just they just get up and walk out the door. And that's the end. Uh, and the very end is like at, they're closing the class. And that's why my home and my family are very important. And then they leave. And then they leave. And that's it. <laughs> they don't ask it. They don't. Nope. Nothing. Okay. You want to hear my, my take on it? Okay. <laughs> okay. Kind of same intro. It's just somebody that's going to talk about yeah. the universe and speculating about what may be out there. Motivation wise, yeah, it's like a shaggiest dog story <laughs> that just got way out of hand. Where <laughs> you could have just gone on for like 45 minutes or an hour, yeah, right? And you'd be like hitting that point where the person, the audience is like, Yeah, okay, how much farther is this gonna go? Is like, when are we gonna get to the punchline? Is there a punchline? No, it goes on no. for uh. I think when I had a, the audiobook, the audiobook was like seven or eight hours. And so it's like eight hours. Yeah. And there is no punchline. There is no punchline. Oh, it's. There are no characters. A, a there lot is of no this plot. stuck with me. I yeah. read this years ago. I'm not saying it's not an interesting and book. And a lot of 
the snippets of this have stuck with me. And when I suggested this book to read for the podcast, I remembered like the first three or four worlds and then some other stuff, blah, 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 and then the star maker and then done. Okay. Yeah. That was interesting. That well, was fun. I think he wrote the first 35% and then his friends gave him some really good shrooms and he took them and he said, Oh, down. I'm sure there were psychedelics involved. And when he woke up, the book was finished and he was like, do I need to go back and read that? And then he was like, no, I trust myself. I'm pretty sure I did a really good job. This and is then like 1930s England. I don't need an editor. Yeah, that's fine. This isn't, I would hesitate to even call this a story because there is no plot. We do not start somewhere. We do not go on, we go on an adventure, but not for any purpose. Really. There's no characters. The protagonist is unnamed. It feels very British sci-fi where it's like, I'm H.G. Wells. I'm just going to be the observer. I'm the narrator. I don't need to have a character. I don't need to have a name. I am the lens through which these people will be experiencing this sci-fi adventure. Adventure, not adventure. It's really difficult to quantify this. You know what it really feels like? This feels like the most British imperialist fucking book I have ever read in my entire <laughs> life. It was literally like, what if a British man colonized the universe? What would that be like? I thought. From the perspective of this is a like early 1900s British guy that wrote this, this feels extremely progressive in some parts. In some parts, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's really like the universe needs to gain an understanding of itself. It, we need the seed of a snowball that will roll around the universe and gather up different perspectives and create this super cosmical being that will be able to comprehend something as large as the star maker. How can we start that? Why? I mean, I mean, the answer is obvious. We need a, a fucking British dude. Like <laughs> who else starts that snowball? It really feels like the joke that how do you know Star Trek was written by a white person because the opening is um, go where no man has gone before, but literally every planet they land on is populated. I think it's supposed to be humans. <laughs> I know, I know. But the joke is, the joke stands. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, it holds up. And honestly, probably the most, the hardest part for me was some of the dated, the dated description of stuff was like everyone was human. Did they reach the level right. of human or did they not reach the level of human? Wow, that guy is a human, but he sure looks fucking gross. I don't know why he didn't look British like every other sane individual. Right, where in the nowadays universe. you'd say conscious or sentient. Yeah. Uh, as as a a like a conscious mind that isn't biologically human. Right. It's just a, a person. Yeah. Like person has become in certain circles, the like generic description for a conscious being. And it was a really interesting mix of really, really imaginative and unique sci-fi settings mixed with really mundane. We couldn't have pushed the boat out far enough. It was be like we meet this race that is a symbiotic relationship between basically fish and crabs. And as imaginative as he is, he's like, it's an ocean. It has fish in it. They meet a crab. They get together. They become. Right. They They're originally symbiotic. rivals. 
that they cooperate. Yeah, and in the vastness of space, is is every ocean going to develop a fish, <laughs> not something else? Not, but then he we get a planet where they've long since lost their atmosphere, but they figured out a way to trap everything in the soil. And so during the day, they're like half plant, half people. So during the day, they attach themselves to roots. They go into this meditative state and they're able and to photosynthesize photosynthesize all, all day. And then they work or do their business all night. And OK, well, that's really imaginative. But then fish and crabs. Oh, OK. And then we get even bigger. It. It, it just felt like sometimes he was like the living ships. Like what if that that one felt really contrived. What the fuck? The living ship. That, that's living, part of the shroom trip. That was. Yeah. He didn't go back and read that. I don't know. Um, overall impression. I think probably every, not every, but a lot of the sci-fi readers that I have read have read this because I could probably sit here and tell you six books that this is similar to like how everybody is telepathically communicating and the whole universe is connected telepathically and that once they're all connected telepathically that's when we reach utopia and that is basically the premise of um, Orson Scott Card's Worthing Saga yeah and the Worthing Saga is and it follows a similar vein where we have a single character who hops through time and witnesses the effects of his decisions because he's mildly telepathic and so he heads off on this colony ship and he ends up forming a colony having a couple kids and then he's like cool select for telepathy see you guys in a thousand years and then he goes to sleep and comes back and everybody is super telepathic and he's like cool keep doing that and he leaves and comes back and by the time he comes back they are so telepathic they literally control the universe and that's basically what happens at the end of this book. And you know what it also reminded me of? Two things. Two things. Mm -hmm. Spore, where you start yeah. as a single-soiled organism, and every time you get big enough, you zoom out, and you can see more of the world, and then mm -hmm. you zoom out, and you can see more of the world, and then you have the chance to evolve. And then once you evolve, the whole process starts over again. So that felt like that. And also, um, in Katamari Damacy... Oh, you're just always rolling When up. you're rolling around and gathering things up. And when you get large enough, the way they rendered it on the PlayStation so that it could, like, you could keep playing is once you leveled up large enough, items that were smaller than a certain size disappeared. Like, you could no longer perceive them. Yeah. And, which is basically what this book is. <laughs> once he gets big enough. Okay, so the basic premise of this book is this British guy goes out after dinner because he's questioning his life and maybe he's a little mad at his wife and I don't know. He lays down in a field, he falls asleep, and then he's traveling in the fucking universe. His mind detaches from his body and... Surprise, surprise. <laughs> and he's like, am I dead though? I don't feel dead though. Am I dead though? And he's like, well, I can travel. And I thought this was really interesting. This is the 1930s. So part of this is commentary on human nature and... Uh, human nature as it relates to what he perceived as a um, inevitable war. Yes. And how is is that type of conflict inevitable in every instance of mind? So in every civilized society that reaches a certain point, will they always 
go to war. Right. Is this a problem endemic in civilization itself? Or is this a human thing? You're right. And then is there someone pulling our strings? Is there a star maker? Which I thought it was interesting to use a sort of PC term. We don't call him God. We don't give God. We don't make it a God, a, a specific religion. It's just the star maker. Right. Right. That, like that's part of it that feels really progressive and I don't know, modern. Yeah. Is that it's almost entirely stripped of any British specific cultural references. Yeah. There's there's like one paragraph or two paragraphs where he makes some references to Christ. Yeah. As an example of like here's kind of themes of religions that he's encountered and one of them is um he uses Christ as a reference a couple times but that's like the closest thing you get like he doesn't even talk about tea. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank oh, you. And I guess ships. And ships. The British are big on ships. There's a whole planet of living ships. Yeah. Um, so those are probably the biggest, like, uh, anachronisms. and Not really anachronisms, but the cultural version of anachronism. Yeah. yeah the, that, the planetary version of anachronism. That and although we generic, we give the Star Maker sort of a genericized generic generalized generalized thank you overhaul we do not dispense with the idea of a star maker right there is a star maker he just has to find it they're convinced there is yeah but they don't have any explicit evidence for it well they believe it exists in some form is it conscious is it sentient is it benevolent is it malevolent they don't know but they believe it exists Right. That there is an entity who is responsible for the creation of the universe. Which gives some meaning to reality. I think it gives Rather him a thing to search for. Rather than just letting it be accidental. This might yeah. actually be our attempt at the plot. Ooh, it's a MacGuffin. It is a MacGuffin. It's the thing he's looking for is the star maker. Because otherwise he's just aimlessly bumbling around the universe mm -hmm. observing things. Learning and, more about the universe for the sake of learning more about the universe. Yeah, so the first thing that he really does is he leaves the earth and he turns around and looks at the earth and I thought this was really cool. I perceived that I was on a little round grain of rock and metal filmed with water and with air whirling in sunlight and darkness and on the skin of that little grain all the swarms of men generation by generation had lived in labor and blindness with intermittent joy and intermittent lucidity of spirit and all their history with its folk wanderings its empires its philosophies its proud sciences its social revolutions its increasing hunger for community was but a flicker in one day of the lives of stars this guy had a massive psychedelic out-of-body experience <laughs> and then to write this book he spent a lot of time like he's up on the latest astronomical science of yeah. the day and in the foreword he he gives some credit to his a specific author <laughs> He gives credit to a specific author yeah. who he borrowed some worlds from. Yeah. B 
because he thought they were really cool. I have noticed this. So I've been on that little journey where I'm reading a bunch of science fiction from around this period. And this was on my list for like in the first group of 25. And I have noticed they reference each other constantly by name. They will have their characters mention the other books. Their books would probably be the only way that they would communicate with each other in a decentralized way. By Olaf's time, we get pulp science fiction. Like science bodice rippers, right, damsels in space, but the like the H.G. Wells, the Jules Verne, the Olaf Stapleton, the C.S. Lewis, the all those types of people—they're all working in their own bubble. They're—I mm-hmm. I hesitate to they're say a genre. They're—they're they're all in the same. They're all considered science fiction, but there's like the pulp science, and then there's this. Um, like speculative science fiction, where it's these like almost literary gentlemen scientists who are speculating about the future of science and using this as a medium. Ooh, futurists, futurists, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's they and all of these futurists all reference each other constantly, and they're like, "Hey, thanks for that idea. It gave me this idea, and now I'm gonna write about it." And the other guy would be like, "No problem. You gave me this idea, and now I'm gonna write about it." And so they all reference, which I think is really cool because they're not hiding the fact that they're all like inspired. They're bouncing the ball and they're all coming up with new things. And then they're like, hey, balls in your court. What's up next? And it's not plagiarism. It's inspiration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They're all working They're You know, they realize they don't exist in isolation, that they are inspired by each other. And so they just call it out for what it is, which is really nice. But yes, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I just say, I was saying that, yeah, he absolutely would have referenced somebody because that's something I have seen in this type of science fiction yeah. in this time period. So he had some inspiration from some contemporaries. He had this ayahuasca journey, whatever. Yeah. And then he spent a lot of time just visualizing, like, based on what I know of ast- astronomical science and planets, and stars, and whatever. I'm just a point of view in, okay, random solar system. Yeah. What's the weirdest thing I can come up with? What would that look like? Yeah. And then just like iterating on that over and over and over again, and that becomes the scenes in the book. Yeah. But you can tell he spent time just visualizing it, not necessarily like narrativizing it, yeah, but just visualizing whatever to get his settings. And I, I really like that part. Yeah, he did it, and you can tell he is not working in a scientific void. He references quite a bit of actual science. So there's a part where he is traveling because he's traveling away from our solar system, and he's like, "Shit, I've stopped. I'm, I'm permanently stranded out here in the dark." And I cannot move anymore, and I'm dead, and this is what happens when you die. Shit. Like, this sucks. They're going to find my body. That sucks. I'm just laying in the heather. Did I even tell my wife I love her? And then he looks, and he's like, oh, wait. The stars in front of me are blue, and the stars behind me are red. Right. Actually, he says, they therefore affected me as slower pulsations than they normally were, and I saw them, therefore, as red. Those that met me on my headlong flight were congested and shortened and were seen as blue. Which is a reference to relativity. And once you start getting close to the speed of light, you get redshift, blue shift. Yeah. The frequencies either lengthen or shorten because you're moving so fast. Right. The red wavelength is longer 
So if you're moving away from it, it you can see things it will get red. more and more red. Yeah, and as, if you're moving towards it, it scrunches, for lack of a better word, the wavelength, and then you get blue light, which I thought was really cool. And then at the very end, he gives you that here's the scale of the universe. If you wanted to depict how far we are, like if you assume that was like Ireland is the size of the solar system and you want to know how far away the nearest solar system is, you'd have to go halfway to the moon. Oh, yeah. He even has a chart in the back of the book. Oh, God. Yes, he does. And I was like, dang, I need to grab that chart so I can put it up on Instagram because it's like, um, here's the chart of the star maker's journey from infancy to maturity. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you Olaf and that whole section at the end where he's talking about the vastness of space right. it reminded me of the conversation that we had with um, Haldane because we talked to this author named Haldane who wrote a book called um, Vitreous Womb which if you haven't read it you should absolutely go check it out but we talked to him in in his interview he said you know a lot of science just sort of fuzzes over how vast and empty and inhospitable the universe is like we can't just bebop to a planet and oh look this one's got people on it oh that's great oh, let's bebop to another planet it's space is vast uncomprehensibly vast and that's part of what he's tackling in this book is how do you learn to perceive this because at first we're just traveling around and then he starts traveling towards stars but they're all too young to have planets he's right. he starts picking targets traveling to them yeah and he's they're all planetless or they just have gas giants or whatever yeah but then he he develops or discovers this new form of locomotion I think he uses the word locomotion. Yeah, he does. And every planet, okay. Uh, <laughs> but when, it's a more intuitive, like you find familiar situations. So he ends up finding a planet that's fairly Earth-like and has creatures that are human-like. They're humanoid shaped. Their faces are different, whatever. Yeah. Uh, but... They have two arms, two legs, and a head with eyes and a mouth. Yeah. The way the telepathy of the universe works is you can only be attracted to something you can understand. And so he uh, he finds himself attracted to the thing most like himself to start with. And I highlighted this because, honestly, when we are very micro and we're looking at just the planets is when he's at his most British. I'm talking mm -hmm. 1930s British. Because every single planet, he's like, well, obviously, they divide themselves into basically two groups. There's the aristocracy and the working <laughs> class. Right. And so he literally says, yet here on the very first globe to be explored was an obvious peasant. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I mean, yes, because that's what any civilized society would do. They would be like... Well, here, even the ships, even the fucking ships have a aristocracy class and a working class. And it's literally what side of the ship are you born on because they launch their babies like lifeboats. <laughs> so if you launch, I was commenting on threads as I was reading this because it was pretty hysterical. Then everything kept coming back to sex. It was like, oh, I've met these peasants. Oh, I'm in their head now. Oh, I wonder how they have sex. And then we went to the ships and he was like, how do they have sex? And then we went 
even farther, like the stars had sex. I was waiting for the nebulas to have sex, but he didn't explicitly say sex. He just said they longed for connection. Right. They they didn't interact directly at all. The nebulas were probably the saddest. That was really sad, especially when he referenced that all this other stuff, like he'd he'd traveled through time and like traveled like I don't know connected with been a part of yeah. the whole development of the like solar like the planetary um consciousness to the like galaxy the continent of the galaxy consciousness to the whole galactic consciousness to the cosmical yeah consciousness and over you know billions of years and then and then he goes back to the beginning of the universe looking for signs of the star maker and before there's any stars or planets or anything he senses something something that feels alive and he realizes it's the nebulae and to them like thousands of years is like just an, hour. an instant yeah and and so they they realized that they were spreading apart from each other and they despaired at the idea that they would get too far away from each other that they would never be able to communicate again and then he mentions that the oldest of the nebulae are still around when the like cosmical consciousness comes into being and how at the beginning, I guess, of like stars forming, some of the nebula were talking about how, oh, they kind of feel uncomfortable, like something's happening. Yeah. And that was like stars forming out of, out of their material and they would stop communicating and, oh, that nebula died. But then like there's still nebula around when the cosmical consciousness is still there. And from the nebula's perspective, this was a rapid disease that just ripped through its entire civilization. Yeah. And they're all gone, replaced with this, like, germ. Yeah. That's spread and propagated everywhere, and it's next. <laughs> <laughs> they were sad. Because when, when they first form and they're really close to each other, they're not conscious. And by the time right. they become conscious enough to be aware of each other, they're too far apart to touch. And they're only ever getting farther apart. And yeah. so they're like, why could we not have been aware of each other when we could have been together? All they want to do is connect with each other, and they can't because they're constantly spreading because the universe is constantly expanding. <laughs> that was some sad shit. So I'll give him credit. He made you feel bad for, for nebula. nebulas. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, I would say, in a similar way that, was it Becky Chambers did? Oh, for the, for the wild built. Yeah. yeah. The way Becky Chambers made you feel sad for a fish, a single fish that you had caught to eat. Yeah. And you watch it die and you feel more sad for this fish dying so you can eat it than like any other thing. <laughs> in what was it? You said, you said that made you feel more emotion 
in just that one scene with the fish than any of the Akatar books. <laughs> shh, shh. <laughs> Don't tell Kate. <laughs> so, yeah. But coming back to sort of closer to the beginning, before we get to the sad-ass nebulas and all that, because that's way, way, way. It's like 70 or 80% into the book. Yeah. Um, back to his, like, the where he, when he is really, you know what? Maybe this is intentional. Maybe he is at his most British when he is alone. And by the time he gathers mm. enough consciousnesses, he he dumps that. He's not as... He has enough pers- perspective. Yeah. Because yeah. he still has like a parochial, I guess. He still has a very Earth mindset when he arrives on his first planet. And he really has a dubious uh, relationship with consent, which tracks for a 1930s man. <laughs> because he can go in people's heads. And he can experience what they're experiencing. And when they don't like it, he's really pissed off. He's like, um, once that once he's in their head, he says, only with the other only when the other had come to realize my presence within him could he, by a special act of volition, keep particular thoughts secret from me. He can even watch their dreams. Yes. Yeah. And then they keep getting angry and like going to get help, like going to therapists. <laughs> One of them goes to their therapist and their therapist is like, well, if you do have an intergalactic traveler in your head, well, intergalactic traveler, hop into my head. I'm, I'll have a chat yeah, with you. Yeah, that's the, yeah. And th- that's like, like a Hail Mary guy. like therapy guy, therapy <laughs> tactic like, oh, you have a voice in your head? Well, can the voice in your head come out into my head? Yeah. And then, no, it can't. It's in your head, right? Yeah. That's That's going to be the standard, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> standard way it happens. But in this case, it does. And the, the therapist is like, oh. Oh, hello, well, hello. friend. Hello, friend. So I'm be- so excited to meet you. You're cured. Don't even worry about paying me. Yeah. Just. No, go home. This was a gift. Problem solved. <laughs> um, it's a win-win. Yeah, but until then, he's been hopping around in heads, and people have been like taking medication and getting therapy to try to get him out. <laughs> and he, he literally says, "After I had spent, according to the local calendar, a year or so of bitter loneliness among minds who refused to treat me as a human being, and to be <laughs> clear, he is an invading consciousness who just." Oops, his way literally into a voice in head. their head yeah and yeah. it's like hello friends <laughs> but they don't even experience the world the same way so he's constantly bombarding them with images to be like no 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 speak the king's english you peasant and so he's like shoving earth down their throats to try to get them an understanding of his life and his language so that they can communicate instead of being like i'm gonna chill here for a little bit i'm gonna figure out how to communicate with you which is what he eventually does with Bavaltu. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I pronounce it. The other guy. The other guy. And I highlighted this because this felt like the most relevant part of this whole scene because we live on this first planet for so long. Are you ready for this? Yeah. The genitals also were equipped with taste <laughs> organs. Oh man. There I, were I, several distinctive slipped out of my mind. Male and Woo. female patterns of chemical characteristics, each powerfully attractive to the opposite sex. So these people are either bitter or sweet, or you or you can taste like a peasant. Peasants have their own flavor. Well, it's more 
or he calls them degenerates. They have their own flavor, and you can try to get yourself in with an aristocrat, but you have to wear perfume, like taste perfume, and then only on your wedding night will your partner realize what you actually taste like, which presupposes that they do not have sex until their wedding night, which is also like a huge British leap, but that's fine. So this was the first I was like, oh, oh, I'm... I'm in for a male book, am I not? <laughs> and I don't believe I ever got proven wrong. Oh, yeah. And then they start to kind of fall apart. This was really interesting because he was talking about this planet and how it would go through these cycles of development, like a golden age, and then they'd reach a utopia. Mm -hmm. And then they'd all kind of lose their mind. Or as this is interesting because I get to reference all the science fiction authors we've talked to, as George Paxinus called it, the endarkenment. Yes, as... Uh, opposite of the enlightenment. Yeah, where you leave science, you turn to religion, and then you just start bombing the crap out of everybody. And at first, our lens, our observer character, is like, oh no, I can learn something from this because this is like what's happening on my planet right now. And then he's like, actually, no, they're inferior. Because he goes, I suspected increasingly that some factor still hidden from me doomed them to a frustration which my own nobler species need <laughs> never fear. <laughs> oh, and then they get a radio. This was really, he had a lot of really good predictive stuff, especially in this first section when we were actually talking about culture and civilization. Yes. Because they get this radio in their pocket because sight. He's a is, very effective futurist. He's a very effective futurist because they don't really use sight. That's not a mode that is something that they understand a lot of so they do a lot of taste and so they actually have these taste sense radios and they end up becoming so preoccupied preoccupied with these taste sense radios they even propose that people will be like put to sleep like literally put you'll be under you'll be put in a bed like bed bound yeah and put in like a vr like full simulation like headset thing yeah and just ready player one yeah you'll yeah. live out your whole life in vr the matrix yeah the matrix yeah and when you are ready to go you can also just euthanize yourself with a button as well yeah you'll have and a then, euthanasia button yeah <laughs> okay and then they figure out how to make radio porn because <laughs> who this man is <laughs> And they figure out how to transmit the same sense, like the same taste sense that you would get from actual intercourse over the radio. And then there's a big debate about whether they should only transmit female, set, like female taste so that men can enjoy it or whether it's okay to transmit both male and female so that both men and women can engage in like radio only fans or whatever. And then we get this banger of a line. Militarists also were strongly opposed to the new invention, which is the sex radio. For in the cheap and efficient production of illusory sexual embraces, they saw a danger even more serious than contraception. The supply of cannon fodder would decline. If you have good enough porn, people won't go out and have sex. You don't get accidental pregnancies. You don't get people signing up for the military. Right. Thank you, Olaf. Um, it's, Slum conditions could be tolerated. It still is accurate it's today. A, no, 
Yeah, he's a very efficient futurist. Slum conditions could be tolerated if there was an unfailing supply of illusory luxury. The feed, anyone? Mm. Back on that previous note, there was a, I think there was a bill in U.S. Congress. Yeah. That specifically mentioned that the supply might have been about abortion, uh, not abortion, um, contraception, adoption, family planning. Okay. But it was specific, it had a phrase, something like the, there's a dwindling supply of a ba- of babies available for adoption. Like it's a problem, like a commodity. Yeah. The supply. It always reminds me of, of that, babies. that facetious Irish article about how to eat babies. It was the leaked draft of Supreme Court Justice Alito's opinion for overturning Roe v. Wade. Yeah. And it refers to the domestic supply of infants. <laughs> God. As a factor... <laughs> For why abortion is a bad thing, because if there's easily accessible abortion, it will impact the domestic supply of infants. Okay. Well, I want to read you. Okay. Anyway, so that's, yeah. it still holds to this it day, does. Olaf. And, Good job. And here's a satirical essay from 1729. I mentioned this on the Discord the other day. I was like, oh, like the guy who suggested we eat babies. And they were like, what the shit? <laughs> Apparently, this isn't common knowledge, so I'll throw it out there for you. It's by Jonathan Swift. It was written in 1729, and it is called A Modest Proposal for Preventing the Children of Poor People from Being a Burden to Their Parents and Their Country. (laughs) And for Making Them Beneficial to the Public, with a K. And here's a a line, and I'll read it because it's at the top here on this article. Well, in the 1700s, spelling hadn't been standardized. Correct. And it says, a young, healthy child, well-nursed, is, at a year old, a most delicious, nourishing, and wholesome food, whether stewed, roasted, baked, or boiled. And I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricassee or a rag out. (laughs) So all of it is about, you can eat them, we can use them for, like... He has all these facetious things that you can use babies for because apparently the children of the poor are a burden to their people and their country. So this was a conversation we've been having for a really long time. And he references it and he does it in a wonderful, this like perfect. Here's another one. I got a lot of quotes from this first world because we spend the most time on this first world. Everything else is real broad strokes. But. This world, for one, for some particular reason, he had a lot to say about this world. And this is one of my favorites. Unfortunately, owing to the diversity of gustatory human types, because human is people, human is alien, yes. human is hum- everything. Human is an sentient person. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, owing to the diversity of gustatory human types, there had seldom been any widespread agreement as to the taste of God. <laughs> <laughs> And then he talks more about over time, the division between the peasant class and the like the working class and the aristocracy class grows wider. And we get this line, the working classes indeed who slaved for the owners in return for a mere pittance gave much of their miserable earnings to the priests and lived in mere abject squalor, more abject squalor than they need have done. And I feel like he's pulling a Star Trek 
this first planet feels like he's pulling a Star Trek. Like he's making commentary on English, Amer- English slash yes. Earth yeah. culture. He's using this Western fantastical culture. Yeah. setting to provide a stage for right. making commentary it's, on his life, on his existence. It's really yeah. like, well, while I've got you, let me go ahead and throw this at you. This is why it feels so progressive to me. Yeah. Is because he consistently makes like good points about the deficiencies of like the whole, I don't know, like British 1800s and 1900s civilization. Yeah. Um, like without, without being, I don't know. Con- too controversial. It's pulling a Star yeah. Trek. Yeah. We're, we're not discriminating against black people. We're discriminating against Klingons. Get it right. They're this not the same. Th- this isn't the same. Yeah. This is about another planet. Why would you assume I was talking about? There's our not planet? even humans there. Come on, right? And I actually like the first planet a lot. I was really engaged in the novel at this point because we actually get communication between two characters. <laughs> <laughs> because our narrator talks to Bavaltu. Right. Yeah. Okay. So this part, there's actually dialogue. There's dialogue and we get and this. then as soon as they leave this planet no, fucking god there's no dialogue that's why i'm saying he wrote 35 percent of this book and then he, he took some amazing shrooms and when he woke up it was finished <laughs> and he was like well i can't top that i'm just gonna leave it it's fine he was he was um autistic info dumping yeah <laughs> 70 percent of the book so long it's too linear to be adhd you're right i think it's definitely uh definitely autistic <laughs> anyway we get this one from bavaltu and he says and if after all there is no star maker if the great company of galaxies leapt into being of their own accord and even if this little nasty world of ours is the only habitation of the spirit anywhere among the stars and this world doomed even so even so i must praise but if there is no star maker what can it be that I praise? I do not know. I will call it only the sharp tang and savor of existence. But to call it this is to say little. I like that. Yeah. I like Baval too. And then he just gets absorbed into British man and we never hear from him again. <laughs> the, they become a new, a new like conjoined yeah. consciousness. He teaches him how to travel. Or as he says, it would be tedious to tell of the experiments by which we acquired and perfected the art of controlled flight through interstellar space. Would it be tedious, Olaf? I would really hate for anything in this book to be tedious. <laughs> I feel like Olaf's uh, metric for tedium is very different from the our metric The tedious bar tedium. has been set and it is low. Okay. You <laughs> At least he recognized there is a line. Yeah. And discussing, like, speculating on what it would be like to teach an alien how to, like, astral plane travel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be crossing the line. Okay. Right. So I'm not going to include any of that. I'll just skip over it. Correct. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe that line, that threshold could have been. In a slightly different spot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Um, you know, if you're going to hand wavy anything, astral projection, I guess we can hand wavy that. That's fine. Which he does provide um, 
an explanation for it. Yeah. That the the ichthyoid, uh, the symbiotic yeah. race, their very, very far future civilization generated this technology that like selects people from different planets. Yeah. And there's a purpose. There's a purpose. Yeah. So they are enabled by some mechanism of some development by a future civilization to do this like disembodied travel through the cosmos. Yeah. And and that's why it happened to him. He just happened to be the one picked. Yeah. And so the whole point of this is for a collection of minds wander the universe, explore, experience lots of different alien civilizations, grow from that experience, develop some sense of like cosmic wisdom, yeah. and then try to bring that back home. Or by the end, he figures he's a god. His collection <laughs> of minds at the time yeah. is cosmic scale. Yeah. He and is so, that universe. By the time he's done, yeah. he is the consciousness of that that universe, that yeah. cosmos. By the time he meets the star maker. Which is why the bar for tedium is just like <laughs> anyway. Uh, and then we get, get this part where he like takes a second and he's like, listen, I know this is going to sound really, really crazy. And I'm glad you guys are with me on this ride. And um, I know it's going to sound cr like it's not going to sound real, but it absolutely happened. And like I'm going to have a hard time writing it down because all of the things that happen from here on out happen to like a cosmic version of myself that I can no longer fully embody because I, I I've lost that that grounding, that sense of lived experience and right. understanding so i only have intimations right of what it was actually like because once he gets bavaltu off the planet they spend some time traveling around and then eventually they get lost they get lost <laughs> and they're like well sorry bavaltu um i can't drop you off at home yeah <laughs> so i guess we're just gonna have to wander around so we figure this out and so they do they go on a bit of a journey, but he says, I can only hope a bit of a journey, a bit of a journey. So mm -hmm. while he's telling us like, okay, shit's about to get real. He says, I can only hope that they have the kind of truth that we sometimes find in myths. He's talking about the stories mm -hmm. that he's going to write. And I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. The truth we find in myths. Yeah. The distilled truth we find in stories. So from here on out, we get, we get, Go world first. We go person to person, and then we go world to world. And this is when we get the weirdest worlds. And <laughs> we get like the people that have lost their atmosphere. We get the living ships. Oh yeah, and when we're on the living ship planet, we get this line: "In the recent past, loud lip service had been paid to gentleness and tolerance and freedom, but the policy had failed because there was no sincere purpose in it, no conviction of the spirit, no true experience of respect for individual personality." <laughs> Like, wow, Olaf. Uh, you know what? These men spent so much time alone. Alone okay. in deep thought smoking cigars. So here's here's what here's what came to my mind when I was thinking about what are we gonna talk about? <laughs> <laughs> 
there there was a meme um talking about like okay modern day like science yeah and it's like okay after spending you know eight years in school and 10 years working on like other research projects i have spent the last four years on my own research project to say that in this very constrained set of conditions, we can make these very accurate statements in a reliable way to say that this happens and here's a mechanism to explain it. And then, <laughs> like, ancient... <laughs> Ancient science was, hey, guys, <laughs> here's what I thought of while I was in the bathtub, <laughs> and this is universal truth. <laughs> yeah, <basically. laughs> so, <laughs> we had some still, really good sherry. I we're drank still half- on, like, the bathtub side of, <laughs> like, natural science philosophy <laughs> when what this guy wrote line? this book there's that line from the time machine when they eat dinner and then they go and sit and it's like that ponderous um it's like that ponderous fog of post-dinner intellectualism or whatever where you like you've had a really good sherry you just ate really good food you're gonna go sit and smoke some cigars with your bros and you're just gonna talk science and by the time you this, eat, this is all... like every night i hang out with my bff <laughs> exactly <laughs> except we, we... He makes really good food. Except you turn around and then and we have some shit. drinks, and then we just ramble for yeah. like two hours. Right. Well, yeah. it is the way of men, apparently. Apparently, From time immemorial. It still, it still happens. Yeah. Uh, one of the worlds that I thought was really, really. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about the first part and a lot less about the second part because I feel like there's a lot more happening in the first part that we can actually talk about and then the second half is just like what is happening and why yeah, is my mind not leaking out the of my second, nose the second two thirds of the book or the second <laughs> half of the book you can summarize pretty yeah you very rapidly but he's talking about all of these different civilizations and what has been their downfall and this one cracked me the fuck up because of what I read with Kate and Hannah where we have really pedestaled these seven foot tall, like eight pack abs, thighs that could crush a concrete <laughs> block, like these mm, fucking like men, right? And so there's this planet where the women all become like they all gain economic independence. And so they stop wanting to select, like to date, and they all want to have children with brute men. Do you remember that one? Oh like, yeah. They have all like they've all fallen in love with the the romantic notion of these yes. brute men. And so <laughs> they literally go out in the world and they select like five of the most perfect specimens and they're like, this guy's ten thousand bucks, this guy's eight thousand bucks, this guy's six, right. four. They all have like ten dollars vitro fertilization. The entire generation is is fertilized by these same brute men and everyone becomes so inbred it le- it leads to the well, downfall of civilization the brute men are not intelligent or sensitive or nuanced yeah and so the next generation following is you need a diverse set of personality traits right because you don't know what's going to happen yeah an and entire generation has so, the same dads 
Yeah, this is what happens. So the entire generation has the same dads, which I hadn't thought of the inbreeding thing. But what he says in the book is they basically all had the same psychological um, predilections for here's how we respond to problems. And they failed to respond correctly to problems yeah. because they were they, – they narrowed – the psychological profile yeah. down so much yeah. yeah yeah and they all devolve into like the most himbo of himbos <laughs> and it's like <laughs> this state of affairs continued for some millions of years but at last the race was destroyed by the ravages of a small rat-like animal against which they could devise no protection <laughs> they get killed by mice <laughs> because because they're like they're like i don't know what to do <laughs> But I thought that was really hysterical because it really rang. It was like his he saw his wife reading a romance novel that had like a chunk, a beefy dude on the cover. Like she probably got a penny dreadful or something that had, <laughs> that had a beefy dude on the cover. And he was like, oh, I can't believe you like that kind of guy. She's like, every woman would have this kind of guy if if she could. And he's like, oh, would they? <laughs> what would happen? You need me because I'm sensitive and intelligent. And I go and sit in the heather while you clean the house and put the kids to bed after me. And I project myself out into the universe. So that was me. Oh. I found the the tweet. Thank you. But anyway, it reminds me of these Instagram videos I've watched that are like, why do women have children with these men? Like, you know, the men, like the my woman should respect me. My woman is like, here's a woman's role. Those dudes, we could literally fuck that out of the gene pool. In one generation. In like one or two generations. Yeah. You just got to stop. Have, you just got to stop having kids with those dudes. Yeah. Just don't humor them. Yeah. We just watched Warm Bodies, which is going to be our, I think it's going to be our movie pretty soon that we're going to talk about. And I was like, this must be written by a woman. Spoiler alert, it wasn't. It was written by a man. But get you... A be the man you see women talking about. Don't be the man you see men talking about. Yes. If a man says this is what you need to be to attract to attract women, he's probably lying out his asshole. Okay. If you see a woman saying this is what I find attractive, she's a subject matter expert. And I would say I, I acknowledge my privilege of having an absentee father. <laughs> So that growing up, I only had a, I had a predominantly female perspective and the, the, I guess, okay, this might be probably the bigger contributing factor. All of my male role models, besides like my grandpa, were Boy Scout dads. Yeah. They were the kinds of dads who were willing to take their kids every week, their boys every week to a meeting and then like once a month go on a camping trip and like humor all the other little boys and play and whatever. Yeah. Like the, all the green flag guys yeah. <laughs> were my role models. <laughs> so I was privileged in that situation. Yeah. I mean, here's a tip. No woman has Andrew Tate as the background on her phone. Nope. No. If if he's saying he knows the secret to what women find attractive, but no women find him attractive, 
You put two and two together. I'm going to leave that up to you. So if you want to get our joke about tedium, here's a snippet from the living ship planet. <laughs> Speech, that essential medium of the developed mentality, had two distinct modes in this world. For short-range communication, rhythmic underwater emissions of gas from a vent in the rear of the organism were heard and analyzed by means of underwater <laughs> ears. Stop! It for <laughs> Stop! Okay. Long distance uh, short-range communication. Yeah. Honey. Thank you. Long-distance communication was carried on by means of semaphore signals from a rapidly <laughs> agitating tentacle on the masthead. <laughs> Because that's as creative as he could get in that situation. He wasn't on the good shrooms yet, okay? It was those were not the good shrooms. He hasn't yeah. gotten them yet. Yeah. But <laughs> he just gets so bogged down for so long on these planets. So then he's finally, finally, we zoom out a little bit. And each time he zooms out, he gets to speculate about the star maker a little bit more. He's like, mm -hmm. well, maybe the star maker is really varied and that's why he creates all these varied things. And, oh, wow, a lot of these planets get destroyed like right when or right before they become human, which he means they, they gain full consciousness. So that seems really sad. Like that, that feels really, uh, maybe the star maker isn't a good guy. Right. He starts to have second thoughts. Maybe... Yeah. Maybe there is a an entity that created the universe. Um, maybe it's not a good guy. Yeah. Okay. What does that mean for my life? Yeah. If the creator of the universe is a bad guy. Right. Yeah. So we go from planet, his planet, to people, individual people, to cultures and civilizations, to whole ass planets because eventually people start to learn how to communicate telepathically and once people start to learn how to communicate telepathically whole planets become a single organism and then we figure out how to travel and i thought this okay olaf because he was like rocket ships no 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 rocket ships i'm gonna leave that up to c.s lewis and hg wells they've beat that dead horse to death i'm gonna leave it what if we just moved the whole fucking planet you don't have to get off the planet if you just it's like picking it's like having a camper. It's like having an RV. <laughs> you just hit You convert it up. your whole planet into an RV. Yeah. And then you just poof, you go off. And, and so, you you create an artificial sun to orbit your RV while you're traveling from one solar system to another. Yeah. And then when you arrive, you just get into a stable orbit and greet the locals. Yeah. And then a bunch of cultures start doing this and then they divide. So now a culture isn't an individual group of people. It is planets. So whole planets will come together and form cultures and civilizations. And one of them is evil and one of them is good because one of them is like live and let live. And the other one is like, we know best. We should probably, it's like the dark forest. Yeah. We should destroy these other planets before they have the opportunity to destroy us. Or as he says, pity they felt. Pity such as we felt for a child that has broken its toy, but no indignation against fate. So this is the, the group of minds that are all wandering together that our narrator is, has, is a member of. Yeah. Is monitoring, just you know, wandering around, looking around, watching 
the evolution of civilizations throughout the galaxy. And, oh, here's a planet that's de very developed and is like a planetary consciousness. And, yeah, things are going pretty good for it. And then here comes this other planet from this, like, warfaring civilization. Yeah. And they just come blow up the whole thing. And they're like, oh, well, that's... That's regrettable that that happened. They blow up their sun. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> here's some other cool shit. Well, they are the impassive observer. Right. They don't, they, uh, sometimes they'll steer a civilization. They'll pop in and they'll help. They'll, because every once in a while they'll try to guide a civilization towards yeah, being give it some benevolent. Advice. Yeah. And then they're, then they step back like, okay, now y'all do it on your own. See if you can figure this out. But we get this whole section where the universe is divided into empires. Like, okay, kids. Like I was, I was showing my daughter the other day. Here's how you swing an axe <laughs> to <laughs> chop some wood. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, I've gone through the motions with you a few times. Now I'm going to step back and I'm going to hit nine one one on my phone and I'm going to watch you do it with my finger right over the call button. <laughs> <laughs> Except they don't have galactic nine one one. Yeah. They're just like ah. You messed up that axe swing. Yeah. That's unfortunate. Correct. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so these bands are roaming around. And if you're wondering, Olaf figured out how to make them have sex. Between individual systems of, of worlds as between symbiotic partners, there sometimes occurred relationships with an almost sexual flavor, though no actual sex played part in them. I mean, they don't have genitals, so. Yeah. They just stared at each other sensually, I guess. I don't know. Um. So sexual... Uh, intercourse is about an exchange of material that's developmental in nature. Yeah. So I'm I'm just like bullshitting out yeah, my ass. Yeah, I right know now. you are. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you see it too. <laughs> uh, just rationalizing how that You're could actually make sense. Olaf. <laughs> okay, so two planets can exchange culture and ideas that each. Provoke develop new development. Well, what happens in the is other. these are kind of like um, blobs. So each planet is sort of like a sticky blob, and when they <laughs> interact with another planet, that their telepathic communication like connects them all, and then they become right. one civilization. So they are sort of That's merging different on a than very the original two. Just like our observer is collecting minds and yeah. merging them into a new emergent personality, all of these planets are merging and becoming an emergent personality in and of themselves. And except for the one planet that is the fish and crabs, because they had to come up with a system of communication because they've been symbiotic for this whole long time. And it ends up actually making them advance really fast. And so they're the ones that they're like, y'all crazy we're gonna go over here we're checking out don't bother us and eventually the evil empire sends a planet over there and they're like okay come on you can come orbit our sun that's fine and they like lure it in and then they sever its ties from the telepathic communication right of they the kill rest all of the, the telepathic communication on the planet right and then the people are just they're too barbaric to live so they end up killing the killing themselves and then they're like okay well that was regrettable but hey look guys we got a new planet and then they send another planet and they do it again and finally they're like no we can't go there nobody comes back like <laughs> <laughs> but the that's when they explode the, the sun the fish crab planet is like 
we don't want to remake our entire civilization. We know that we are developed enough that if we converted into a warfaring society, we would just wipe these people off the right. map. We don't. That's a but step we cannot take. We can't do that because we wouldn't be able to come back from it. Right. It would too fundamentally change who we are. So we're right. not willing to do it. So they, they actually endure getting blown up three times. And then they figure out how to completely sever the connection for all of these people in this empire. And it's a really interesting, like, he ends up saying, like, I wish that pacifism would work on a micro scale. Mm -hmm. That we could literally allow whole civilizations of planets to be destroyed in a, all right, guys. Don't do it again. Turn the other cheek. Shame, do yeah. it once. Shame on me. Do it twice. Shame on you. Third time, uh, we're going to sever your telepathic connection with each other for the rest of the eternity. And it, it's just a really interesting... Okay. So then we go from there. And then we whoop, zoom out again. And we go from planet consciousness... I thought... Well, back to the, yeah. the fish crab society sure. civilization. After they sever all of the telepathic communication in the like warfaring planets. They then like send emissaries to tr like train them oh, yeah. back up. And sometimes it works. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't, but they're able to get, they're mildly successful at reforming these planetary societies Yeah, to Get them to come back up to a developed state, but be nice now. Well, they don't want to sacrifice. They don't want to sacrifice these people because, as he says, diversity and multiplicity of worlds was as necessary on the galactic plane as diversity and multiplicity of individuals on the world plane and diversity and multiplicity of nerve cells on the individual plane. So this section was really interesting. And from here, we sort of um, put the pedal to the floor in terms of weirdness, because he starts speculating that maybe the whole purpose of creating this cosmos and allowing these people to become connected and allowing this whole cosmos to become a single emergent personality is for the star maker to create a wife. Back to sex. He's like... I'm pretty sure God needs someone to bang. But as he says, um, we can't. he can't just make her. Uh, so we imagine that he made her of his hunger for beauty and his will for love, but also that he scourged her in the making and tormented her so that she might at last triumph over all adversity. And this just brings me back to my earlier point, which is, gentlemen, you should not be the challenge your wife has to overcome. Right. She should not have to prepare herself to battle you. So just, you know, if you're thinking that, don't think that. Get therapy. So we move on and we ultimately zoom out again and we're like, okay, so now whole whole planet systems, whole solar systems are now entities. We've got now- Whole our, chunks of the galaxy. Right. Well, we are, first we do just solar system yeah. because this is when we're like, hey, I've got- I've got a, I'm a solar system. I want to go hang out with this other solar system. But the whole moving planets thing is great. But when we're moving a bunch of them, it's hard to get enough, like, you know, artificial suns together. And that's, that's a big thing. What if we move the sun and we just follow the sun? 
just move the whole solar system. We'll just, it's like a bigger RV. We'll go from a 20-footer to a 45-footer, okay? Yeah. And so they start moving their sun. It's successful. They are on their way to the other solar system, and the sun blows up and destroys everybody. And they're like, well, that's an unfortunate coincidence. And then another sun blows up. And then another sun blows up. And then some planets or suns that are too old to explode... He seemed to think only young stars. All right. And that was probably the astronomy of the At time. At the time. But he was saying that older, like red giants, would send out a solar flare and would scourge the planets in their orbit. Right. Basically, the suns started killing planets. Yeah. And they didn't know what was going on. Well, they're like, uh, that's, that's, that's too much of a thing. Like it maybe can't it's be a because the, they were, they were harvesting directly from the suns, the stars, they were harvested. Very they were, geometry for ocelots. Yeah. They were um, engineering yeah, the they suns. Yeah, they were exploding them for their resources. They were moving them. They were meddling with suns. And well, it turns, it turns out, out the suns didn't like, the stars didn't like that. Yeah, the stars are sentient. And so then we, now we're going to talk about the stars and how the stars also believe in like beauty and their entire purpose is to hold their place in the dance. And don't worry, he figured out how to make them have sex too. And, but none of them would take their place, uh, the, would, none of them would move out of their prescribed place in the dance seeking sex, but no. they would admire the small number of stars that were able to enjoy sex with other stars. Yeah, you had to get close enough to each like other a, by pure Basically, chance. if two stars became like a binary star system yeah. and merged, that was star sex. Yeah, if so, the life of each star is experienced not only as the perfect execution of formal beauty, but also as the perfect expression of love. And so what was happening is these people were moving stars and blowing stars up and doing all kinds of star shenanigans, and the stars didn't know that there were people and that it was being done to them. They thought they were doing it and that they were being immoral. And so they were destroying themselves to prevent themselves from being immoral and throwing the whole dance out of balance. And eventually they learn how to make contact with the suns and then the suns and the solar systems all become a single consciousness. And then we whoop zoom out again. And now we're talking full galactic consciousness. The entire galaxy has a single consciousness and that gets a little tedious. We, I'm not even going to talk about it. We zoom well, out. Like they, they send out. Um, now we have communication between galaxies. Yeah. And where each galaxy is a person. And then they start sending, I don't know, communications teams out to galaxies that had a not had not yet achieved galactic consciousness to like educate the planetary systems and the stars about each other before they had this warfare because this this combat this battle between the stars and the people on the planets was a pattern that happened in lots of different galaxies and it exhausted the resources of the stars way faster than uh if they hadn't been battling each other right so they're like maybe we can like extend like save Save some time, like get them through that hurdle of realizing that, oh, the planets are sentient, 
the stars are sentient. You need to talk to each other. Use your words before you use your hands. <laughs> and but, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then now you get galaxy consciousnesses talking to each other in such a large scale that you have this collective multi-galaxy consciousness. Yes. The cosmical consciousness. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's what I said. He puts the pedal to the floor. He's like, y'all ready to go? Because we're about to fucking go. And then finally, we talk to the sad-ass nebulas, which is honestly the saddest part of the entire right. Oh, he gets to the end of the universe. Yeah. And there's no signs of the star maker. So because he's like, the universe goes out because all the suns have exploded themselves. And so it hastens the death of the universe. Right. All the, yeah. It's the heat death of the universe. Yeah. Which he goes into tedious detail. <laughs> I think um, that might have been when I fell asleep. <laughs> like the Kindle fell out of my hand. It was like a it was like a cartoon, you know, when you watch the mom in the cartoon and her head tips forward and then the book falls out of her hand. It was like that, only it was a Kindle. And it was Olaf's fault. Almost a hundred years ago, Olaf. Jeez. But finally, he goes from the very end. He can travel in time and space at this point. So he travels all the way back to the beginning of the universe. And this is when we meet the nebulas. And then eventually he finds the star maker. He zooms out far enough. He's like, all right, well, I've gone from I've literally met everything in the universe at this point. There must be some overarching consciousness. Like I've, every time I zoom out, I find a consciousness. There must be one. So I would like to read you the description of the star maker. The first description or the second description? The one where he witnesses it and then he zips away. Okay. He's like, ah! okay. <laughs> 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 um, okay. It seemed to me that this effulgent star was the center of a four-dimensional sphere whose curved surface was the three-dimensional cosmos, the star of stars. This star was indeed the star maker, was perceived by me, its cosmical creature, for one moment before its splendor seared my vision. And in that moment, I knew that I had indeed seen the very source of all cosmical life and light and mind, and of how much else besides I had yet no knowledge. So he zooms all the way out. He sees like four dimensional star maker being, and he's like, Well, that fried my little brain. And so he zips back out, and then he has a dream. He, he goes on a vision quest. He somehow in his, it's like a meta vision quest because he goes on a vision quest in his vision quest. It's like when you have a right. flashback and, and a flashback. He, he kind of explains it Ugh. at the end that it's more that the dream was his way of unpacking that momentary exposure yeah. to the star maker. Does he get hit with the bright light when he sees the four dimensional being or does he get hit with that in his dream? Because he tries to perceive the star maker and he gets like engulfed in light and it blinds him. Right. And then he goes on this journey. I think he opens his eyes too much. And okay. then he has to, ah, that was too bright. Okay. Because then he goes on this journey where he sees the star maker from immaturity to mature. Um, the I am range the of the cosmoses <laughs> that the star maker has yeah. made. Maked. Yeah. And ours is the one that he made after he got a little bit 
uh, he he made a bunch and got they a little bit better great. at it. He made a bunch and they they were so great. And he stopped and meditated for a while, and then he created something way better, and that's England. So <laughs> <laughs> the universe that has England in it, but it's not the ultimate. Yeah, cosmos. No, it's not. He keeps going, and it gets. I got to be honest. It was like. <laughs> it's just like yep <laughs> that all sounds great and in this one there was no gravity and so this one was two-dimensional yeah, so and this one was all about like... music these people were made of music and you're like olaf i hope you didn't take two can you od on mushrooms can you because i feel like you're close you're so close right so now. He, the star maker goes through a phase where yeah they are creating universes with rules to produce like a specific outcome and like the rules are constrained so that the outcome is more predictable yeah and then they're like eh, like this isn't satisfying this he, isn't pro- star maker is male get it right that's that's true sorry he uses he i'm sorry i'm using I got, they i got a little trigger go ahead no it's fine um so that's not producing anything uh, interesting, useful, yeah. uh, novel. So then they meditate for a little while and then they say, okay, I'm just going to create a universe with a set of rules with no like intervention, planned intervention built in. Yeah. Because some previous universes, they had planned that they were going to intervene with specific societies that emerged, whatever. But then this one, nah, I'm just going to set the ground rules, set the initial conditions, and let it run. And I'm not, I'm, I don't know, I have my fingers in the pie. Yeah. And maybe something more interesting will come out of this. And it does. And they like what they see, and they develop on that and refine their process for creating a universe. Um, but Olaf doesn't go into detail because uh, Olaf doesn't remember it. Yeah. Once more, but in shame and adoration, I cried out to my maker. I said, it is enough and far more than enough to be the creature of so dread and lovely a spirit whose potency is infinite, whose nature passes the comprehension even of a minded cosmos. It is enough to have been created, to have embodied this moment, the infinite and tumultuously creative spirit. It is infinitely more than enough to have been used, to have been the rough sketch for some perfected creation. So we meet God, Ultimately, at the end, but we kind of only perceive him in a dream. So I think it's left up to you whether he simply perceived the next layer above Nebula, the next, the four dimensional layer beyond our three dimensional space. And then his mind created this vision of God based on his expectations Mm -hmm. or whether that being was actually God. Right. Yeah. Because immediately after that, pretty much, he shatters and goes back into his individual peoples. And he goes back to being the guy in the Heather who went out there to go hang out and get away from his wife. And he kind of 
takes what he learned and he gives you this like, in my mind, I traveled around the planet and I saw all the people and I saw the conflict that was coming and I saw, you know, I love that he's like, I saw Germany and I saw its cathedrals and I saw the men gathered in the square out in the cathedral with like jackboots and, and hel helmets or whatever. And I saw England and I saw Big Ben and I saw France and I saw the Eiffel Tower and I saw and I saw Africa and I saw the British and Dutch exploiting the African people. The highlights. I saw Egypt and black people in Africa. So I'm like, thank you so much, Olaf, for that. It's the 1930s. It's right. the 1930s. He was the fact that he mentioned the their plight at all was it was something. It yeah. was it was not nothing. Yeah. And it's really interesting because he comes back with like, I clearly need to help. I need to do what I can to steer my civilization, even knowing we're eventually going to have to flee to Mars and then flee to Neptune, which like, sorry, do that. Or Uranus. We're going to run to, was it Uranus or Neptune? I think Neptune. It was one of the gaseous ones that we absolutely can't live on. So like, nice try. I didn't even know that we didn't have a picture of it until Voyager flew by it. Until I was watching a documentary with the kids. Oh, of Neptune? Yeah, which would be the 70s. So we've only known what Neptune looked like for like 50 years. Wow. Which is pretty impressive. So anyway, we get this really cool line. This last line, that I mean, a lot happened. But at this point, you're just like, you've literally been sitting in this there's, lecture for eight hours. There's no pauses for just some downtime Nothing. for processing. Nothing. Right? It. This... My my suggestion would be to read this book like two or three pages at a time. Like when you sit down to read, you read two or three pages of this book and then you set it aside and you read a book with a plot. <laughs> or you move on, you know, like that's how you start your morning. You don't go on to read, but you don't – this is not bingeable. This is like when we talk – It's too dense. It's, yeah. it's dense. It's relentless. It is stream of consciousness effectively where it's just – it's literally – like eight audio hours or I think my Kindle told me it took me six and a half hours to read it. But like it is six and a half hours of slog of ever expanding floral. Oh, ten hours. Ten hours. Wow. Ten hours and 41 minutes for the audiobook. Wow. A floral, overwrought, dense speculative speculative uh just observation <laughs> and uh, it's like learning the history of a world that never happened but that you also don't care about <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's not a bad book it's just not the kind of book we're used to reading like oh god i got this 900 page book i crushed it it was so good nobody crushes the star maker right. it's, it's so definitely good. maybe somebody does informative on about how like sci-fi literature I would be, has changed. I would love to have a conversation with Olaf. Did he make small talk or was this what every conversation with him was like? He was like, so tell me, what would you do if you encountered a four-dimensional being? Because <laughs> I know what I would do. I spent a lot. Of, he didn't consider himself a fiction writer. Not he that was He was born in 1886. Oh, he was like... 10 when most of H.G. Wells' like banger books came out. So he probably grew he, up reading those. He passed away in 1950. God, I hate it when they make it to an age where you're like, there could be pictures of you. And they wrote this shit. Yeah, there's pictures of them. I don't look at it. Anyway, so. Does that look like 
a man who would write this book. Yes. Yes, it does. It's the most British face I've ever seen in my entire life. So in short, should you read this book? Yes. I think everyone should probably at least give this book a shot. I don't think you just sit down and crush this book. And if you you go a little cross-eyed in the end and you don't get every, you don't wring meaning out of every single sentence, I think that's probably okay. At the audiobook, um, I I got to like 57% and then it's like, I need to finish this. So I had the audiobook from when I listened to it like 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, the audiobook is very listenable. I feel like this would be a book better listened to. Normally I'm like, yeah. no, I think I would comprehend this better reading. But I honestly feel like it would feel like a podcast if I was listening to it. But reading it, I have a different expectation for it. You need to grab my attention. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're listening to it, you can be just a lit, you can be enough inattentive that you can maintain focus on it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like I kept literally kept falling asleep reading this. But I think this, I think I can see the roots of a lot of science fiction stories in this. Mm-hmm. I think I can see the roots. There's of, a reason it's on a lot of lists of formative yeah. sci fi. Formative. I would absolutely describe this as formative. The way he pushed the boat out in terms of imagination for what you could have in a science fiction universe and the types of worlds that might exist and the scope at which you can operate. I think all of that is important because you look at like H.G. Wells, he's like, yeah, the Martians shot cylinders at us and they all happened to land in England. Not nice. Whoa. <laughs> what? What a coincidence. Or you get a lot of people traveling to the moon. Hey guys, we made it to the moon, which is fine. But in terms of cosmical scale, because he uses cosmical constantly, that's why I keep saying cosmical. In terms of cosmical scale, it's small. We literally, oh, we got to your satellite. Well, go fuck, congratulations. Yeah, that's great. Did you make it to Mars? No, too far. So we have a lot of, you know, the first men in the moon, or maybe we might travel to Venus, or we might travel to Mars. If you fall asleep in a cave, you go to Venus or Mars, you know, that's definitely how that's done. And But we don't think what's outside the solar system. What happens if we go bigger? What happens if we go real big? And what happens if we go even bigger and then even bigger? And then then we meet God. So I, I think that's it. somebody has to do that first and they don't have to do it best. They just have to do it first. And yeah. is this the best huge scale science fiction novel I've ever read? I would read? say he did it first. He didn't necessarily do it best, but he did it the most comprehensively. <laughs> he, yes. He left no stone unturned. <laughs> Not one. You have a question? Don't worry. Olaf's got you. He's got the answer. And he's in his book. What did sex taste like for aliens? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is in this book. It depends on whether you're a peasant or not. I thought we already covered that. <laughs> well, and it was like region-based. Yeah. Like you'd have a race that lived on uh. this continent continent versus a race that lived on another continent, and their sex would taste different. Yeah, the women also vomited food into their children's mouths, and sometimes their husbands, too. So that was really funny. <laughs> Like, honey, do you want some noodle salad? No, no, I'm busy. We'll just come over here. (laughs) Gives a whole new meaning to the, like, feed your husband. The way to your husband's heart is through his stomach. (laughs) Okay, great. Well, I can do that. Especially, I don't know, it's weird. Anyway, I'm not, we're done talking about this book. We're done talking about this book. But I think you should go read this book. 
I don't think I, we can accurately describe the feeling of reading this book. It was, it felt like reading. It was like, um, if geometry for ocelots didn't have a plot and it was just about this universe <laughs> just speculative version of where they figure out how to mine stars and the stars are going out. And then somebody is just watching the Bivnik effect take place and the whole universe die of heat death. And they even mention in this book that there are races that expand beyond consciousness that move into another plane of being and they lose, they lose connection. They lose track of them. Yeah. Yeah. Like in geometry for ocelots where you, if literally, if you can survive long enough, you can transcend the dimensional space that you live in, but you have to figure out how to cancel out the Bivnik effect first. Right. If you don't know what we're talking about, go read Geometry for Ocelot. That's a really good book. I actually mean it's a really good book. I don't mean it like I mean this yeah, one, that which one is like actually engaging and exciting. This one you read for clout. This one you read for clout. This is Geometry for Ocelot, you clout, read for the book. Yeah. I would say Star Maker is for clout and perspective. Clout and perspective. If you are a sci fi fan, you identify as a sci fi fan, you are the type of person who talks about sci fi at parties. You need to have Star Killer under your belt. Star Maker. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Star Killer is completely different. This is a Star Wars character or Star no, um, ship. Isn't that Rainbow Bright? No, Rainbow Bright and the Star Stealer. That's it. And then Yet in Crescent another... City, there's a Star Eater. I have a lot of star things going on in my head right now. Um, in fact, I compared Crescent City to um, Rainbow Bright and the Star Stealer. So if you're interested in why I did that, listen to Feast Sheath and Shatter. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel's yet another podcast. <laughs> I know. Well, I like what I like. So I guess we'll just leave it there. So remember, sometimes the strangest things are the most beautiful too. I actually think Olaf would agree with us. Yeah. So be who you are and love what you love. Until next time, friends. Bye. Bye.